Hello, everyone. Welcome to this edition of the Ipsos Mori podcast. Today, we're going to focus specifically on the most recent data that we've collected across 28 countries globally, asking the general public about their perceptions of how COVID-19 has impacted on children and young people, on their education, their well-being, their life opportunities, and also just reflecting with some experts on whether what the public think is actually aligned with what their on-the-ground knowledge is of the impact on children and young people. I'm Kelly Beaver, Managing Director of Ipsos Mori's Public Affairs Division, and with me today I'm delighted to have Mark Herbert, who is Director of Schools and Technical and Vocational Education and Training at the British Council, and also Will Straw, Will CEO of the Prince, Prince's Trust International. Thanks to both of you for joining today. It's brilliant to have you here to talk through this data with us and what it really means. So firstly, Mark, do you just want to say a little bit about the British Council and your role within it? Thank you very much. Um, it's great to be on the, uh, the podcast today. The British Council is an organisation that's been around since uh, the Second World War and our purpose then, as it is now, is to build connections uh, between the UK and other countries, connections, understanding and trust, but always through culture and education and the English language. Uh, and my part in that is to work on mainly schools education and also TVET, um, where we're building joint projects to connect young people and education systems here in the UK with systems all around the world uh, with a view to improving the quality of education and the inclusiveness of education. And in the in the process, I think uh, we're always looking to build long term ties between the UK and that other country. Fantastic. I think it'll be interesting to get your perspective on how things have worked over the last year in particular, given that need to connect internationally, which has been oh so difficult. And then, uh, Will, would you mind saying a little bit just about what, what the Prince's Trust International team get up to? Thanks, Kelly. Yes, um, Prince's Trust International was founded by His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales in 2015, following uh, four decades of experience in the UK of supporting young people on their journey from education to employment. Uh, so we have a similar mission to help young people around the world to, to learn, work and thrive. Um, we do this through programmes focused on helping young people finish their education journey, particularly those who are at risk of dropping out of schools, um, helping young people gain skills for employment uh, and uh, skills for entrepreneurship to set up their own business. Um, and uh, we do this working with local delivery partners uh, now in uh, about a dozen countries, uh, mainly in the Commonwealth, but, um, but in Europe and the Middle East as well. Fantastic. Thanks, Will. It's brilliant to have you both here today. So firstly, then, just a little bit of context. Um, it will be known to you both, of course, that over the last year, children's education has been hugely disrupted. I think the UNESCO estimates that in the first year it was around 31 countries where they actually closed schools in full and about 48 where they partially closed the doors of schools for children and young people just to help with the reduction in transmission of the virus, which, of course, has been very top of mind. But what do you think the impact of COVID-19 and school closures has actually had on children and young people? What are you seeing on the ground day to day? The experience that the British Council is hearing through its offices all over the world and in conversation with ministries of education is that um, the disruption in school closures really has been very profound and the disruption has been uh, differentiated between 
generally richer and generally poorer countries. Now, that's a, that is a, a generalization, but the inequalities that exist within all societies have been exacerbated by the COVID crisis. And in lower and lower and middle income countries, uh, basically countries that don't have the educational infrastructure to get good standards of education at any time, so pre-COVID, they have really suffered. And they've suffered particularly in rural areas where internet connectivity is poorer, uh, where the availability of uh, devices to, to connect and school from home have, have simply just been unavailable. So that's that's limited just the physical connectivity between children and their schools. But also in those systems, the, the teachers are often less used to using technology anyway, and mm. therefore any attempt to uh, teach remotely has not been has generally not been successful. Now there have been some some real um, you know, breakthrough innovations, albeit forced upon us, but breakthrough innovations in some of those countries, teaching through TV, teaching through uh, radio that you know, reaches can reach all parts of a country. But nevertheless, I think what we're seeing is more marginalised, less wealthy children suffering the most in the education systems and countries around the world. And also some of those consequences are really profound and long lasting. They, yeah. those, those children will not be, uh, in many cases, able to get back into school. Some will be leaving school and not returning. And more often than not, it's girls that are disproportionately affected and also other marginalized groups uh, like uh, you know, children with disabilities. Uh, so we're gonna see the you know, echoes of the COVID crisis affecting education for years and years to come. Thanks for that, Mark. Quite a depressing picture. And of course, um, from a Princess, International Princess Trust perspective, Will, you must be very concerned about things like ongoing skills development and employability opportunities in the longer term as well as a result of COVID. Do you just want to talk through what, what you've seen on the ground? Uh, absolutely. No, I, I echo everything that Mark said. And just to put this in context, um, UNICEF's estimate is it's 1.6 billion children at uh, the peak of the pandemic were out of school. And even just a few months ago, uh, around half of those hadn't returned. And um, as Mark says, I think the, the major worry as we see um, school closures continuing in many countries around the world is the long term scarring effects, both from uh, those um, children who will never return to school uh, and uh, may, may find themselves uh, as uh, Mark alluded to in uh, child labour or um, even uh, child marriage, um, but also those um, children who will eventually return to school but may not be able to catch up from the lost uh, education and lost learning and that is likely to have pr a profound impact for, uh, for years to come. And um, although there has been some um, some, some great innovation and uh, you know obviously um, here in the UK I think we saw a, a big change between the provision that schools provided with the first um, school lockdown and the second yes. and certainly with um, with my own kids there was you know much um, greater structure around homeschooling um, mm -hmm. obviously in, in lower income settings um, that uh, hasn't always been the case and as Mark says been um, this massive digital divide um, where both um, hardware um, whether that's a smartphone or a laptop uh, much harder to come by and also um, not uh, not the disposable income for data and yeah. uh, one of the findings we found as we have surveyed um, young people who've taken part in our programs both um, both children in schools and uh, and older uh, young people um, is that um, although in many instances the transition to online uh, learning has worked um, it's uh, it's not worked so well for um, young women and girls 
who have found that it's quite often the, the boys in the family or young men who get first dibs on the um, on the um, digital equipment if it exists. So there's a, a digital look divide and a very profound gender divide as well. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. And the, obviously there are the um, what people might consider some of those hard outcomes like educational and skills outcomes that will be affected. But our polling also found a really strong trend across lots of countries around bad mental health and well-being being a big concern amongst the public is one of those long-term outcomes for young people from this pandemic. Was it surprising to you that so many countries, more than other outcomes that they were mentioning, they were mentioning young people's mental health and well-being as being one of their top concerns? I guess, uh, Mark, um, would you like to uh, go first? It, it, it doesn't surprise me uh, that it's come through in your findings that mental health and well-being are you know, real real challenges. Um, we have heard that from our own British Council offices around the world in conversation with ministries of education and some of the digital events that we've held. Uh, we've found te teachers and school leaders um, joining our events that have been about mental health and well-being mm. uh, more than almost any other topic, which surprised us at the time. It surprised us, but clearly, you know, backed up by the evidence that you're gathering, it is a you know, really sig significant issue. Um, and that, that, I think, is across the board. That's not related as much as you know, the technology issues, not related to the wealth of countries and the um, you know, necessarily development of their education systems. So, um, I mean, it's something we can get into perhaps in a bit more detail, but overall, not surprised. We're hearing similar things. Um, and it, again, I think is going to be a long lasting effect. Uh, although return to school in many cases should improve the mental health and well-being of young people who've really suffered from the isolation, mm. it may be that for some, just being back with their peers in the classroom isn't enough and there'll be long, long, longer lasting effects. But I think it'll it'll take a while to really work that through um, and quite a lot of research to understand what's needed to help those young people to fully get back to the learning environment and to catch up with lost learning. As Will said, you know, there's real lost learning and that doesn't just happen overnight. It will take time to recover that lost learning. Yeah, yeah. And, and Will, just not just on the mental health issue, but more broadly, we do see differences in our data coming through uh, different issues for children of different age categories. So um, mental health, yes, but also some of the older children really facing difficulties like maintaining concentration. Do you see that coming through in any of your, your programmes of work on the ground? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly in terms of mental health, um, this has been, um, as uh, as Mark says, not not surprising. But I think it's it's good that in many countries, although important to stress, not all, there is a greater openness now about mental health and well-being than there was even five or ten years ago. Yes. Um, and this has been, you know, the most profound psychological shock on young people uh, who have gone from a lifestyle of spending much of their time in classrooms with um, with their peers and their friends. Um, to being um, you know, locked down at home um, and um, it, it will take time to unpack what the impact of that is. Um, certainly um, across our programmes where we have um, started up again in schools and I should stress that we haven't started up again in all countries so there are still school lockdowns taking place. Um, it, um, it is hard to get um, programmes back back in line and to keep people engaged but um, I think there's a strong appetite from a lot of uh, young people to learn um, and also uh, you know a, a relief I think from teachers to be moving back into the classroom and away yeah. from 
uh, teaching digitally. Yeah. When we look at some of the data that we've collected, we see this huge concern about children and young people and these fast, long reaching effects that are not just educational, but mental health, concentration, etc. But on the other hand, on average, six in 10 would say that school closures are actually an acceptable price to pay to reduce transmission of COVID-19. Um, and we do see a difference here between those who are more highly educated um, within the population that was surveyed. And I just I wonder about your reflections on that. Um, you know, do, does that does that ring true in any way to you? Do you have any reflections on sort of the acceptability of school closures and also um, what alternatives could be put in place to help salvage um, children's educations during points of pandemics? Well, I think there's a, a few points to make here. I mean, first of all, um, is it justifiable that a majority of, um, of the public think that school closures were an important step? Pro probably not. There was um, uh, a lot of focus on this at the beginning and you know, there were concerns in, in a very fluid environment where very little was known about the virus that um, you know, closing schools would be a good way of stopping transmission. I think as we've learned more about the virus, it's become clear, thankfully, that children are um, not badly affected uh, and um, have lower transmission levels as well. So uh, I think that um, we, we really do now need to ensure that um, schools are reopening um, and that safe protocols are, are in place to do so, as we're seeing in many countries. And I think it is a concern um, although there are always mitigating circumstances, when um, in, in some countries around the world we've seen economies opening faster than school systems. Mm, um, yeah. I think there's a, there's a real danger there um, in terms of the, um, the long-term impact. Of course, you can understand the pressures on governments uh, and, uh, and um, you know, we need to think about schools as being an environment uh, not just for students, but for teachers as well. Um, and teachers have uh, rightly been concerned about, um, about their health risks. But um, it's, uh, it's clear that schools can um, develop protocols to keep um, young people and teachers safe. Um, and uh, I think that's got to be the focus uh, in, the, uh, in the months ahead, uh, because we're going to live with this virus for a long time to come. Um, and uh, you know, uh, vaccine uh, rollouts in some countries has been uh, very positive, but there's still a hell of a long way to go uh, in yeah. many other countries. Um, so, you know, we, we, we can't um, end up with schools closed um, or, um, or perpetually closing. Um, we, need to, we need to find ways that, to ensure that education continues as the world um, learns to live with this virus. Thank you. And then, and Mark, so there's some recent evidence out from an organisation called Human Rights Watch, which actually suggests for many children, COVID-19 and the closures that have been seen may not be temporary and actually really mark the end of their educations, um, which is obviously quite concerning, especially in some of the countries where it's been hard fought to get the education systems in place. And I, I just to get your view a little bit on my previous question about the alternatives to lockdowns, but also some reflections on what really needs to be done to ensure that access to education is improved and we don't go backwards. So on, on the first point about closures, I you know, like well, I think at the time it was very difficult to know quite what was the right thing to do. You know, the world, including education systems, was learning, uh, learning fast about you know, what was the best way to control the pandemic and closures seemed an obvious way of uh, of addressing it not least for minimizing transmission but also protecting protecting children so i think that was probably necessary and understandable at the time 
um, moving past that now is is clearly essential. Um, and I was interested in some of the statistics that came through the uh, research that you've done, that in, in Latin American countries, there was a high acceptance of school closures being appropriate and necessary, but mm. also a much higher priority placed on increased education spending um, as a after the pandemic. So in a, a greater investment in uh, spending on education compared to some of the other um, you know, choices that governments have in terms of their spending priorities. That, uh, what was also interesting that, that was that higher income countries um, and th those with actually very high performing education systems, um, Singapore, South Korea, Japan stood out to me, they're only 10, roughly 10% of respondents um, saw education investment as a priority post-pandemic. So there's there's something really interesting about the, those who've accepted school closures are very necessary are also really conscious of the need to invest in the um, in the improvements in education and the recovery process. Now, maybe that's because they've seen firsthand the consequences yeah. of long long-term closures on the on the children. Um, yeah. I, I think looking looking more more broad broadly. We need to look back at what was happening in education systems in perhaps lower income countries before the pandemic. You know, we had at primary level, 50% um, of children in many lower income countries leaving school without the basics of reading and writing. And that was even, um, the figures were even worse for, for girls in many of those countries. The, the out of school children as well, um, are you know, the numbers of out of school children are huge. 67 million, um, some, some figures out recently, who were out of school and living in conflict effect affected states, and therefore very unlikely to get back into school. So you know, the situation, the learning crisis across the world in lower income countries was really severe before COVID had hit. And now we've probably been put back somewhere between 10 and 20 years in terms of our progress towards the, the objective set out in the sustainable development goals. So I know I'm sounding a bit downbeat here because that those those figures are you know, are particularly uh, startling and the trajectory for improvement is um you know is going to be particularly hard in those lower income countries. And my, my point there being that as a you know wealthier nations will need to support um countries that are you know need more investment to get their education systems back up and running uh, and need help from multilateral agencies and and wealthier countries if we are going to get uh, children back into school and learning and recover yeah. the losses from, from covid yeah yeah well I'll, I'll come back to that um because we have also looked at public attitudes to overseas uh, aid spending and um I don't think there'll be any surprises in there, but it's worth us spending time on the podcast reflecting on it. But firstly, I wanted to come to the issue of sort of online resources, digitalization, et cetera, because both Princess Trust International and British Council have programs which are around digitalization or giving online resources to teachers to use with pupils. And the research that we have done um, suggests that around only a third of people see actions related to improving access to things like high speed Internet connections, giving laptops and tablets. That is um, it's the second and third most frequently mentioned action on average. So how do you think um, their expectations is that um, do you think the public are in the right sort of sense of direction here with your own understanding around the actions that need to be taken with digital technology um, and this thinking about the whole range of countries that you operate across here? In terms of um, our programmes at Princess Trust International, um, over the last um, over the last 18 months, 
Um, 80% of our delivery has been um, moved to virtual delivery because of the pandemic. Um, but in addition to that, for, for a number of years, we've been providing um, digital uh, literacy skills um, and, uh, and also developing our own um, digital content. Um, so I think um, this is the direction of travel. We will certainly want to return to face-to-face -face learning where we can. Um, but we may, um, in many instances, have a blended offer where the core of our programme delivery is face-to-face, -face, but there are digital elements so that people can pick up the programme in their own time. Um, and, uh, and one of the things we found over the last uh, 18 months is that um, we were no longer constrained by the geographical locations of our training. Mm -hmm. And that um, young young people could uh, could join from a wide range of areas, M more with the programmes that we provide for young people who've left school, um, but um, but still the case in, in some instances with school-based programmes. What that uh, very evidently entails is that in um, in in um, higher-income countries uh, or in uh, higher-income parts of low-income countries where there is um, decent um, connectivity and, um, and hardware, um, you know, th this is going to continue to work. But there are many, many settings where it doesn't at the moment uh, because of those two factors. So um, investments in um, digital infrastructure um, and the provision of um, laptops and um, smartphone use for young people is absolutely essential um, and uh, going to become increasingly important. But we must remember as well that um, it's it's not uh, it's not good enough just to give a young person um, access. They need to get the skills to use it as well. Um, yes, and, uh, that's a really important part of the mix. Yes, Mark, have you anything to add on the digital agenda? Yeah, Go ahead. I'm not. I'm not surprised that the um, this this research showed that we had a roughly a third. Of, um, of respondents saying that internet access and also access for you know, hardware, laptops, tablets, computers was really important as, as far as the response, the educational response um, to COVID goes. Uh, clearly, it's vital for those children who don't have access. And this is this is the same really in, in richer and poorer countries, the difference just being the extent. There are plenty of young people in the UK and other European countries who haven't been able to have um, reliable access to resources or reliable access to um, a good internet connection. And that's been a real blocker, a real barrier to their participation in online schooling. And therefore, they've been dropping behind further than their, their peers that have had the opportunity to be online. So I'm not surprised by the by the results. Um, I think you know, different systems will respond in different ways to the need to provide uh, access to hardware and the support to actually use them to enable children to make the best of them. Uh, as Will said, having having a, a laptop or a tablet and not being able to use it or actually not having the educational software and resources on it that are usable really makes it you know, there's no point making the investment frankly uh, and, and similarly for teachers many teachers have not been used to teaching online at all many teachers have used some ict in the classroom but it hasn't been a majority of their teaching so it they've relied on face-to-face -face techniques of course that's a big big leap for teachers and particularly those who are perhaps a little bit older a little bit further on in their careers um, mm. it is harder perhaps to adapt and shift quickly to you know, online teaching. So there's the, the barriers that pupils face, the barriers that teachers face, um, which are you know, going to be again with us for a while. Um, 
Nevertheless, I do think you know, the, if, we're, if we look long term, the relative cost of technology is reducing and that gives hope, I think, for um, lower income countries to be able to invest in rollout programmes that will enable both schools, teachers, pupils to have access to technology. So if there are school closures in future, and I imagine as we go through the, the next phase of the pandemic, we'll have sporadic closures of yeah. systems or parts of systems or individual schools, and therefore you know, the availability of technology will help with those. Um, I Just reflecting on the experience we've had in our own programmes, um, like Will, almost all of our work has had to move online. I say had to move online because it, it was sort of forced upon us. But a lot of our teacher training was delivered face to face in a cascade model with master trainers going out to schools and delivering that um, in, in clusters that that went online. And actually, that worked surprisingly well. And at the time, it was a big task, of course. But you look back now, nearly a year on, most of that has been very successful. And in some ways, it's enabled us to reach a wider audience, enable more teachers to take advantage of um, some professional development because you don't have the limitations of space and, and travel and so on, doesn't get in the way. Um, if you can get online, if you're able to access the training, you can take advantage of it. Now, I, I do think that the face-to-face -face element and the human connection you get in a professional development setting mm. um, is valuable and you can't quite replicate that online, yeah. but that's outweighed by the, or at least offset, by the opportunity to reach many more teachers or school leaders. And the same is applied to policymakers. We work a lot with um, ministries of education, policymakers who are responsible for different aspects of the, the curriculum or school inspection or standards. And um, we've been able to reach more of them and engage with more than we would have done. But we have missed out on that opportunity to have policymakers sitting around a table and talking about their experiences, sharing evidence about what works and learning from each other in those those more human settings that you get in conferences and workshops. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think all of us will have seen the same in our in our work. And um, as we come through the recovery period, hopefully we can get some of the face to face interactions back. Um, just touching on a point that was raised earlier, really, about the priorities as we start to come out of we, we hope the pandemic and obviously very different stages across different countries. Um, but the point raised was around the importance of overseas aid, um, specifically to support education, children, young people. Um, and when we looked at this in the research, it didn't really come out as a top priority. In fact, in most countries, the idea of overseas aid spending was only a sort of less than five percent as a saw it as a top three priority. And we know already in our own um, context here in the UK, there are going to be many competing priorities. Um, for a government of the day to be selecting amongst as we come into the recovery period. Um, just your own thinking really on that kind of setting, that kind of the spending in the context of how aid and specifically aid around education is going to be prioritised in this pandemic and what really can be, what, what can be done um, in that kind of context and what would be the challenges. So whoever wants to take uh, that one first, that's a tricky one. So, so firstly, looking at the results from from your your research, we saw 58% of um, respondents saying that public healthcare, investment in healthcare was critically important um, after the pandemic. And that's, I think, not a surprise. You know, public health has been absolutely at the forefront of our minds month in, month out. Um, and overseas development and looking beyond 
one's borders is is I think almost inevitably a lower priority, and that that probably reflects uh, trends in public attitudes uh, even before the pandemic. That um, overseas development, while being seen as important, it never quite makes it to the top of the the agenda in terms of um, you know public public spending because there are so many other priorities domestically. So I'm not surprised about the the way people responded to the questions in in your research. But I think then turning to the response, I suppose the world is ever more interconnected and interdependent. So if countries around the world that we work with, collaborate with, um, and are are our partners one way or the other, um, are unable to make progress or unable to make as much progress in their own education system development, which affects the lives of, all, of course, all their citizens, but also the the long-term prosperity of those nations. If we're not able to find ways to support them and their, their progress, then we will suffer as much as that well, not maybe as much, but we will suffer as well as they will suffer. So in, a, in, a, in an interconnected world, a, a rising tide in terms of the quality of education, access to education, um, floats all boats. All young people will benefit around the world if educational quality is improved around the world. Now that's very difficult to very difficult to get the public commitment to uh, long-term spending and development aid, and particularly in education. But nevertheless, uh, the the UK's FCDO has recently published a plan for girls' education, which makes very clear that it is in everyone's interest to invest in improved education for girls and boys around the world. Uh, so it's in the national interest of the UK, as well as it naturally being in the interest of the countries um, that we are working with. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. I agree. It's going to be um, getting that up the priority list. And I guess, Will, so you're funded uh, as an organisation in quite a different way. So less linked in with um, not, you know, sort of national funding agendas around overseas development aid. What's your take on all of this? Yes, that's right. We we don't um, have any government funding. Our, our funding is from um, philanthropy and, uh, and corporate philanthropy. Um, we, um, I think, first of all, like, like Mark, I'm not surprised by these findings. Um, I, I would would have been um, surprised if there'd been an increase in support um, for development spending. And um, as Mark said, it's always been a lower priority. Um, but governments need to balance uh, public opinion um, with what's in the um, economic interest and also what's in the moral interest. And I think there are strong arguments in both areas. Um, Mark's very eloquently set out um, what the economic interests are for um, for the UK and other rich countries. Um, to continue um, investing in um, the education of, uh, of poorer countries. Um, but I think with, with an aim of helping those countries to develop their education systems, uh, ensure that more children are leaving school um, with, um, with the right skills uh, and able to fulfil their potential and become uh, economic actors in their economies. Um, so that um, spending of that kind wouldn't need to come from overseas in the future, but could come from domestic sources. So there's a virtual circle here as well. Um, there is also a moral case. The um, the world, um, UN member states have signed up to the Sustainable Development Goals, right. um, which includes a goal around quality education. Um, and um, we, we all have to play our part uh, in that. So 
I think it is right um, that governments continue to spend what is actually a very small proportion of overall um, overall national income uh, in the UK. It's obviously fallen a bit recently, but is less than a penny in the pound um, of, uh, of national income. So um, it's important that um, these investments continue to be made in the future. Thank you both. And thank you for taking the time to go through the data and what how it compares to what you're actually seeing on the ground. Um, just to say this research was undertaken in order to recognise World Youth Skills Day, which was established back in 2014, which is about celebrating the strategic importance of equipping young people with skills for employment, decent work and entrepreneurship, which has never been more important than it is today as we start to come out, we hope, of the COVID-19 pandemic. So many thanks to Mark and many thanks to Will for their time today. And you can find all of this research, of course, on the Ipsos Mori website page. Thanks for listening.